The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. because um, our minds and hearts are giving us some kind of trouble. We may feel that we're um, assailed or tossed about by unhelpful thoughts or challenging emotions, disturbing emotions, and we'll come to meditation hoping that um, we can learn some techniques that will give us some peace of mind, that will... um, help us to feel like we struggle a little bit less. And then after years of practice, I sometimes hear from meditators, um, they'll report that they're still working on the same stuff, that um, the same thought and emotional patterns are still repeating in their life. So it'll often go something like, why is this still coming up? Why haven't I gotten rid of this? And we may have this wish sometimes with meditation that when we see these patterns with awareness, that they should, with some relative sense of ease, should go away or should be solved. So sometimes people then will, um, when they find themselves getting stuck in the same patterns over and over again, they'll say, well, what's wrong with me? Um, What am I doing wrong? Why doesn't this change? Or... They may even feel a little embarrassed to admit that mindfulness doesn't seem to be quite doing the trick. So if you're in any of, anywhere in that category, this talk is for you. Um, also, though, for new meditators that come um, feeling like uh, most meditators at some point, and it doesn't often take too long, discover that meditation seems a whole lot more difficult than they had hoped or planned. Uh, I discovered it in the first five minutes that I meditated when um, I gave up after five minutes. So I thought, this is impossible. Nobody can do this. My mind was such um, a tangle. So this talk is also for you. So these patterns that seem to come back over and over again, um, we can call them karmic knots. And this is a term that I first heard from my teacher, Michelle McDonald. And so a karmic knot could be called a tangle of um, emotions and thoughts that usually have repeated so many times in our mind-heart. Mind-heart, I kind of use the words together. um, That um, they're... um, like a knot that's tight and inflexible, or you could say it's a groove in the mind that we've gone down so many times 
that uh, it's, it's, it's slick, it's well-worn. You know, we get triggered and the mind goes and down and it's lost in the same pattern. So some examples may be like um, deep-seated anxiety or insecurity or um, perfectionism, self-judgment, uncontrollable anger, or any kind of addictive pattern probably has a karmic knot at its um, core. And often our karmic knots get set in place when we're quite young. Um, or they're a confirmed cultural belief, so they're reinforced by our culture. I'll explain a little bit more when I'm going to take a karmic knot and reach it through it. Um, and when they're set in place very young, they often have a certain kind of survival uh, strategy to them, a way we've learned to cope with the world and, and make some sense out of the world. So. Um, that helps them to have this kind of deeply ingrained, inflexible texture. So to some people talking about um, what seems like deep emotional issues, uh, there may be this question is, well, isn't that like psychotherapy? Aren't we talking about psychotherapy now? Um, but at its root, I see these karmic knots as a spiritual problem. And the reason why is because we actually create our strongest sense of self around these karmic knots. Um, this is how we create a sense of who we are and the very kind of tightness of the karmic knot actually points to the strong amount of what we call identification in Buddhism or attachment to the thoughts and emotions that are coming up. Kind of the believing them, the getting lost in them, that's the identification. And any way we can loosen these knots in our mind, let in a little flexibility or spaciousness, whether it is through psychotherapy or, or mindfulness practice, um, leads to more freedom in the heart and mind. And that's uh, what we're after here, a heart and mind that's uh, less caught in attachment or identification or any sense of being bound. We're looking for the um, boundless heart-mind. So any way we can work with these knots helps create more of that space and freedom in our hearts. So it loosens our sense of, um, our, our strong attachment to sense of self, anatta in Buddhism. So a number of months ago I was reflecting about this um, thing of meditators coming and saying, you know, I'm still working with the same thing this many years later. What's going on? And I started to think about a couple of my karmic knots. Most of us specialize, but at least a couple. Um, and I started to look at, like, how have they transformed? What happened? And I noticed that there's, like, six identifiable phases that we could say we go through and the healing of our karmic knots or the untangling of our karmic knots or the opening of the heart and mind around our karmic knots. And um, it's not like it's totally linear. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it has its ups and downs. We may find, you know, we're in one phase one week and then we slept poorly and we go back a couple of phases. So it, uh, it's... Um, not exactly linear, but it's a general progression as mindfulness strengthens. Mindfulness and non-identification and wisdom strengthen compassion. So it's really a process of dehypnotizing ourselves or deconditioning ourselves with awareness and with compassion or love. And um, it takes a while. It takes time. Lots of patience. And I found that um, talking with people about these different phases has helped a lot of um, folks feel less self-judgment about themselves and their practice. And that frees up a lot of energy to actually become interested in what's happening. If we're um, judging ourselves for the, for the things that come up, it doesn't leave much space to be interested and to actually learn. So if we can... Um, cut the judgment a little bit, it leaves a lot more space for, for growth. So we're trying to turn judgment into interest and compassion. 
So a common uh, karmic knot is, um, and one that I've worked with, and one I'm going to kind of go through is uh, perfectionism or not feeling good enough. This is um, a cultural knot, I would say. It's very common. hear about it from so many meditators. And it could have a lot of different kind of strands, as a knot may. Striving, anxiety, perfectionism, always having to be busy and productive, self-judgment, self-hatred. So that, that could be like some of the strands of this knot. I see it a lot in young people. I, I teach meditation um, to a lot of young people where there's this kind of, it manifests as this kind of sense of pressure and anxiety that I see over and over again in young people these days. It's not exactly new, but I really notice it with young people. I once uh, read a study, study recently that showed that young people are now five times as likely to suffer from anxiety as they did in 1938. I guess they did this inventory at a college every few years or something. So it seems to be a cultural problem, also, this kind of um, perfectionism, striving kind of energy. And so I've seen in myself over years of practice that I've gone from being very unconscious of that pattern operating in my life to a certain amount of freedom and lightness and um, flexibility and going through these phases, so I'll take you through, see what you think. We can talk about it afterwards. So the first phase, we could say, is pre-awareness. We have some kind of karmic knot or pattern in our life, and we're not aware. We don't even know that it's happening. It's just business as usual. It's just the way we live. Uh, so you could say we're not really conscious of the pattern. It, it runs in the um, subconscious. So, for example, when I was younger, I had this really strong conditioning for um, perfectionism, lots of anxiety. I didn't really understand that that wasn't that didn't have to be the way I lived, had lived. I didn't have to be the way I lived. So, for example, when I was a teenager, I remember um, I would go to sleep at night, and um, before I would go to sleep, I would review my day to make sure there wasn't something I hadn't worried enough about. So it was, it, was, it was, now, you know, it was like, it's strange, right? But back then, it, it didn't seem strange to me. It seemed like a good idea. Um, so I wasn't really aware of, of what was going on. So I would, like, review everything to see that I'd worried about everything so that everything was kind of in right order and, and okay and perfect so that I could go to sleep. When I first started to meditate, um, and we often meditate out of our karmic knots, when I first started to meditate, um, I had a lot of strong striving energy. I wanted to be super yogi, you know, do everything perfectly. That's another kind of manifestation of that same knot of like, I'm not good enough, I need to be perfect, I need to have everything just right. So we're not aware of the pattern, but it's definitely operating in our lives. So the second phase, so that's pre-awareness. The second phase is what I call awareness after. And it's like we notice the karmic knot, not while it's happening, but afterwards. So we see that we were caught in something, not while we're caught, but later, afterwards. So this is how mindfulness works at first, when it's not um, as strong or as well-developed. We become aware afterwards. And the Buddha said that that's actually a good step. He actually recommended that we reflect after we do actions. Um, we reflect and see, was that, did that cause suffering? Did that cause happiness? Um, in order to increase the awareness. So I, I wouldn't see the perfectionist pattern when it was happening, but afterwards I would become aware that I'd been dominated by it. So the way this happened for me um, was I would find that, like if I was with friends and I wasn't so worried about being perfect that I actually relaxed and just was the way I was, and then afterwards I would be super anxious 
that, that's what, how I noticed it. It was I was anxious because I I um, I didn't um, worry hard enough about being perfect while I was with them. <laughs> it's like I didn't know what was happening during, but afterwards I would see, oh my God, that that pattern was operating. So another thing that might happen with some people, for example, if you work a lot with anger, is okay, you blow up, you're angry, you're not aware, and then afterwards you go, okay. You know, it's like we get hijacked, right, by whatever that pattern is, and then afterwards we can look at it. That sounds great. We're starting to become aware. Um, Still plenty of suffering and still more awareness needed. So the third phase I call awareness during. And this is when we start to become aware of our karmic knot while it's happening. So the pattern comes into our present time awareness. Yet, we're still heavily identified with it. So there's still an element of being lost and controlled, perhaps, or hijacked. But we're aware of that while it's happening. So, um, for example, with me, it's like I would start to become aware of this striving to be perfect, this feeling of not being good enough while it was happening. But I still believed all the thoughts. So that's what I mean when I say I was still heavily identified. I still believed I wasn't good enough. But I was but at least I was being aware while it was happening. This actually is more painful. For most people this phase is more painful than the past more disconnected or unembodied or um, dissociated um, way that we were before. So uh, sometimes meditators will come in and they'll say, why would I want to meditate just to be aware of this? (laughs) That means you're in phase three (laughs) of your karmic knot. It's really the most painful, actually. It's a a phase, I say, where we curse um, the person who turned us on to meditation. Anybody done that? I've done that. (laughs) There's this um, quote I love from Natalie Goldberg in the Shambhala Sun magazine. She says, The terrible truth, which is rarely mentioned, is that meditation doesn't lead us directly to some vaporous, glazed-eyed peace. It drops us right into the personal meat of human suffering. With practice, we settle right down into the barbed wire nest. And this changes us. So I think phase three feels a little bit sometimes like the barbed wire nest. I hope I'm not scaring anybody who's fairly new. <laughs> anybody here for the first time tonight? <laughs> Just bug your ears for that last. <laughs> we don't tell you that the first time. <laughs> so I do, I do hear, I did hear once of Trungpa Rinpoche like, when he was meditating with uh, he had a hall full of people that were fairly new. He's like, go home now, go home now. <laughs> Before you get started. Because the truth of the matter is by the time you're in phase three, it's like you don't have any choice but to go forward. Because you can't go backwards. And it's so painful that you, you're not interested in sticking there. You know that something's got something's to shift. So the good thing about phase three is that we're finally starting to see through our delusion, our self-deception, dissociation. And that's powerful, even if it's not pleasant. We're starting to stick with ourselves and developing what one teacher called uh, emotional honesty. So we stop using our energy to resist our karmic knots. And we begin to use that energy to, to become interested in and investigating what's happening. And as we this phase matures, we become increasingly interested in meeting the truth of our experience as it is. We become um, more committed to, to truth, even if it's painful, rather than self-deception. 
So it's like a reporter getting interested in the truth of an event. You know, who, what, where, when, how. How does this pattern work? How does it get triggered? How does it feel? What's the truth of my experience? And we develop this understanding not to try to get rid of it, but to get deeply intimate with it. So that's the shift. We're making a shift from trying to get rid of something to actually um, turning towards it, turning towards what's difficult. So we start to let ourselves feel it in our heart, feel it in the mind, what this experience is really like. So I started to let myself feel what it was like you know, that deep contraction of not feeling good enough or the self-judgment, which it often turned into, the self-hatred that it often turned into. I let myself feel what it was like to turn against myself so harshly. Really painful. One retreat, I found that um, I found myself uh, judging every breath. It was very quick and, and almost unconscious, but after each breath, it's like, was that breath good enough? Did I pay attention to it well enough? It's kind of this, like, you know, really coming down almost hard on myself to every moment. Good. It has to be good, good, good. Intense. So if we tend to act out our pattern in some kind of way, like uh, we were talking about anger, for example, at this phase, um, we might still find ourselves acting out our old conditioned patterns. That's why it's so frustrating, right? It's like, wow, I'm still doing this. <laughs> um, it's like, have you ever tried to untangle a knot that's really tight? It's like you kind of pull here and you pull there and, you, and it's like, oh, it's not budging. Why, why? <laughs> They're still believing the thoughts. But we're getting a little curious, too. So some space is starting to open up. And when we undertake the exploration at this point, we really have to do it with a lot of wisdom and balance. So when we have interest in energy, we can explore our karmic knot, whether it's in meditation, like I said, exploring that feeling of self-hatred, self-turning against myself, like really viscerally, what does that feel like? Or exploring it in our lives when, the, when these patterns come up. But at times, if, if, if it's too strong, the emotion, the thoughts are too overwhelming, and we don't have energy, it's actually wise to take a step back. So it's like really learning the balance with these karmic knots of, to investigate when we feel strong and to, um, you could even say, withdraw or pull back when we don't have the energy. I worked a lot in my early years of practice um, with fear, another one of my karmic knots. And, um, you know, I, at first I had to learn actually not how to investigate fear, but how to get out of it. It's like in order to um, be with it skillfully to develop understanding, it was most important first to know that I knew how to pull out and not get lost there. So sometimes with our karmic knots, we're just learning like how do I, I pull out of my identification with these thoughts or feelings. And then at other times, just a firm no is, is a good idea. <laughs> Some pattern is torturing us, and we don't have a lot of time for investigation at the moment. It's just like, no, not now. Thank you. And that also becomes more pos possible in this third stage when we actually have an awareness that it's happening right now. Also at this stage, um, and this is the one where we spend a lot of time, so it's the one I talk about um, um, the most, we also start to develop um, compassion, really important. So we see that the suffering we're experiencing isn't perhaps so personal 
that it's actually part of the human condition. So this is another angle of not identifying so much as not taking it all to be personal, but understanding that it's human, that these karmic knots are human. So we cultivate, by turning towards the suffering, we actually start to cultivate a softening of the heart. A heart that can hold the truth with tenderness or gentleness. So we start becoming um, loyal to being present with our experience with as much softness as possible or openness. So we're making this shift from aversion to care, from getting rid of to resting within. And so the challenge, perhaps, at this, at this point is that we become interested in our karmic knots without further entrenching them, so that we open to them without further strengthening the, ta- the attachment. So there's a risk sometimes that we can become too fascinated with our stories when we meditate, too fascinated with, with our problems or struggles. Um, And that in some ways we can actually strengthen our sense of self around them with that fascination. Like this is me and this is my story and kind of like that. Um, Or we may find that we are investigating um, suffering in order to get rid of it. And that's again also a form of identifying or being attached to it, trying to get rid of it. But there's a risk also of not engaging with this level of practice, this level of um, this phase of actually being there while we're suffering. Because sometimes there's, sometimes when we look at the teachings, we can say, oh, okay, something comes up really strong. It's one of these patterns. And it's like, oh, not me, not mine. You know, in Buddhism, you can say that. Oh, this is not me, anatta. Um, And so sometimes we try to skip over this kind of phase. We try to um, disidentify or not identify before we've actually experienced what it is. Does this make sense? So so there's a risk of doing that too because when we we kind of um, move to not identify or disidentify too quickly, we actually miss the possibility of the compassion that can be developed, the softening of the heart, the understanding of universal human suffering that can come from this honest, in-the-trenches engagement with what is going on for us. So we may wind up being able to control our patterns by moving away to, you know, not me, not mine. But control isn't peace. It's like for peace, we have to be able to move through. Okay, that was phase three. (laughs) Phase four I call starting to not identify. So as we um, continue to work with what these different patterns are for us, um, we start to taste more freedom as our mindfulness deepens. And we start to perhaps see our karmic pattern arise, and we start to realize, oh, that there might be another way, that maybe we don't have to get lost in this. We might see the thoughts and realize, oh, those are just thoughts. But it comes from having moved through the previous kind of investigation. So a crack in our world might review, our worldview might. Um, reveal that we don't have to be stuck in the old conditioned way. I'll give you another example. Um, For years, uh, when I would visit IMS, there was a period of years when I practiced there. um, And I would just visit people I knew or whatever, IMS Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts that Mark mentioned. So for a while, you know, I would visit. And um, the staff dining room there is like where everything happens. It's like the nerve center of the... um, of the institution, and so I'd be in the staff dining room, and a certain woman would come in, and uh, 
I was actually quite envious of her, but I didn't know that that was what was happening. This was the pre-awareness phase. So the pre-awareness phase was I thought I didn't like her. And that, you know, I found all kinds of reasons that she wasn't okay. And, <laughs> but, and that, so then, then I started to become aware. After a while, I started to become aware that actually, oh, I was envious of her. So this was awareness after, right? And um, she had a lot of things that I that I wished I had, and uh, you guys don't need all the details. <laughs> so then, um, then it started to happen that I would go in the dining room, she would come in, and I actually would start to feel what it felt to be envious of her. I actually let myself feel it. And, um, you know, the different insecurities and thoughts and stuff that would come up. It's painful. That's you will recognize that that was the third phase. And then, um, so one time she comes in, you know, I'm in the staff dining room, she comes in, and I see the whole story coming. It's like, it's like looking down a highway, you know the road, you know where it goes. And I was, or another um, image I sometimes had, it's like I had a tape recorder. And it was set um, on pause, <laughs> and I was ready to push the button, and I knew exactly what the tape was going to say. I'd been down that road a number of times, you know, mindfully, what it felt like, what the stories were like. And I just, there was this moment, I was like, I don't want to do that to myself. I was like, I don't want to do that. And it wasn't out of aversion. It was actually out of care for myself. It was like, I know that story. I know it hurts. I know exactly where it goes. I think I'm not going to do it today. It was, it was um, like a crack had happened in my worldview. It was like, oh, I didn't need to do that. And so then after, after a while, what happened is I started to get to know her. And she's actually a really nice person. And then um, I started to teach with her sometimes. She was invited on the same team as me. And then um, one time she was giving a Dharma talk, and I was sitting by listening, and it was a really nice Dharma talk, and I felt really happy for her. And so I went from, from envy all the way to what is known in Buddhism as mudita, which is happiness and the joy of others or success of others. And it took a long time <laughs> because it was a certain like karmic knot, right? It took time. But freedom, when I could feel happy for her, that was freedom. That was flexibility in the heart. That was um, space in the heart. Rather than envy, which is a very contracted, suffering, tight place. So this is like phase four then. It's like we start to be able to have um, these moments or these times when it's like, oh, we don't get caught. It comes up, but we don't get caught. So there's a lot more freedom here. We're starting to taste the freedom because we've been able to um, let go of identifying with or getting attached to the pattern when it arises. And um, sometimes it almost feels like a moment of grace or a moment of transformation. And it comes from all the previous moments of mindfulness, the power of the accumulated mindfulness of working with whatever it is. It's like the payoff for the hard work is how it feels. It's the moments of mindful awareness that give us the power to kind of like break out of the conditioning and see another way. So we, if we can start to, at this stage, we sometimes start to understand kind of the strands of the knot and what keeps them um, tied together, and the beliefs perhaps underlying or um, just different ways that uh, what holds it together. And we find that we can choose different ways. I had this one retreat where this perfectionistic pattern um, opened up for me um, a number of years ago. At one point on a retreat, my teacher told me to quit meditating. And um, I had been super yogi up till then, so I knew how to do super yogi. And um, 
she told me to quit meditating. So then I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I mean, how am I going to prove I'm super yogi if I'm not even meditating, right? You know, like everybody's sitting and walking and I'm not supposed to do that. I was allowed to do what she called useless gazing, which, <laughs> which meant I could sit at a, out on the lawn or at a window with a cup of tea and just look. <laughs> not even look. Useless gazing, I could gaze uselessly. Um, <laughs> And I just went into full-blown freak-out um, because uh, I couldn't be super yogi. You know, it's like I couldn't be perfect. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do anything. I had to be totally everything that I thought was a bad yogi I had to do. And it was one of the best retreats I ever had. I went through about 10, 10 days of hell, um, just all that conditioning, you know. And then it was like, oh, my God. There's so much freedom here. I don't have to be perfect. Wow, this is great. And then I had a lovely retreat. Letting go, a whole other way of being. So as this, this stage, this fourth stage um, matures, we, we um, have more and more, more and more often we can see um, when our karmic knot is operating and not take it so personally. So you could say the thoughts and emotions become less sticky. That stickiness is the identification or the attachment, the stickiness of the thoughts and the emotions. It's like some of that glue starts melting off. And we can even and allow the experience to kind of unfold with some sense of spaciousness. We see that we don't have to follow through with the old pattern. So then phase five, I call tasting freedom. And the thoughts and the emotions of the karmic knot still um, may arise in our experience, but there's not a whole, there's not enough attachment or identification for them to gather much steam. So we can kind of see them, we see the pattern arising, but it doesn't really get on a good roll because the, um, former identification has uh, lessened enough. There was a, um, an interview by Leonard Cohen in a Shambhala Sun uh, magazine. And a couple of lines I really loved. He, he talked about how you kind of replay all your fantasies and meditation over and over and over again. He said, you do it until they bore themselves into non-existence. <laughs> And that's a little bit what happens with the karmic knot, is at a certain point, it's just not so interesting anymore. It kind of bores itself into non-existence. There's not juice. There's just not that juice that, that we get attached. So as this stage matures, the karmic knot arises less often. And when it does, um, it's not a problem. We don't take the bait, so we don't suffer. It's OK. Or sometimes we can see the karmic not arising and we just say, no thanks. But it's not a no thanks like, oh, go away, I can't stand you. It's a no thanks like, oh, not totally interested in this. There's compassion and equanimity in that no thanks. And so we find at this stage that we have an increased sense of stability and um, confidence in our practice, confidence in our ability to meet suffering with grace. And there's more spaciousness in the mind. I wanted to read a little story. Um, this is from Jack Cornfield's book called After the Ecstasy, Then the Laundry. And it's about, uh, it's, a, it's a great book. He interviewed a lot of um, teachers and senior students who had had awakening experiences. and. Um, asked him what happens afterwards. So one teacher said, in many ways, the spiritual transformation of the past decades, long time, is different than I had imagined. I'm still the same quirky person with much the same style and ways of being. So that on the outside, I'm not that amazingly transformed, enlightened person I had first hoped to become. 
but there's a big transformation inside. Years of working with my feelings and family patterns and and temper have softened the way I hold them all. In the struggle to know and deeply accept my life, it has been transformed, and my love has grown larger. If my life was like a crowded garage where I kept bumping into the furniture and judging myself, now it's like I've moved into an airplane hangar with the doors left open. I've got the same old stuff there, yet it doesn't limit me like before. I'm the same, yet now I'm free to move about, even to fly. So there's uh, so much more space in the heart and mind. So perhaps some of the same stuff comes up, but with all that space, we don't have to bump into it. It doesn't have to limit us. There's still room in our hearts and minds to fly. I'd say in my practice I saw this shift in this pattern in that um, my practice moved from control, being super yogi, control to ease, and from forcing practice to relaxing into practice. If I don't have to be perfect, I can relax into practice just as it is. So from perfectionism to interest and curiosity. So it can take time to navigate these um, phases, lots of time. My um, teacher says um, a minimum of 10 years, perhaps, on a karmic knot. Uh, that doesn't mean that 10 years till you don't have it, till you have a taste of freedom. So don't worry if you're 70 and you're like, whoa, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean 10 years? No, but sometimes it can take 10 years for for a certain amount of um, kind of stability in working with a karmic knot, or somewhere between 10 years and a lifetime. <laughs> to, to work with our karmic knots. It's true. Maybe you laugh because you recognize it. I hope so. <laughs> Eventually we drop the idea that um, we have some goal that we have to reach and um, instead embrace our experience. We embrace the process itself as it's happening. That becomes, you could say, our goal to embrace the, our experience as it's happening in the present moment. And then last, phase six, the liberated heart and mind. This phase is not part of my personal experience, but I take it, <laughs> I take it on faith in the Buddhist path. Um, in the Buddhist teachings, uh, we can reach a level of spiritual maturity where our hearts and minds are so purified of the force of attachment or identification, that stickiness. Um, we're so purified with, of that force that these patterns no longer have a place to land, so you could say. Um, so fully enlightened beings called arhats in the Theravadan tradition are free of this kind of suffering. There's no um, attachment present in the heart and mind, so there's no longer any karmic force to perpetuate karmic knots. So maybe we all find some uh, the same ease and uh, freedom of heart and mind. Let's just take a moment to sit, and then we have a little bit of time for some questions. Thank you for your attention to the Dhamma. And uh, if there's any questions or comments, I'd be happy to 
consider them. Force my practice, but relax into it. I think that um, we often start practice with the sense that we're trying to make something happen, right? Or that we're trying to maybe make our minds and hearts behave in a certain way, or um, even make our breath be a certain way. Uh, it's kind of that deep conditioning to want to do something, to make something happen. And over time, and certainly there's some place for that in meditation. I'm not saying that we have to toss that out entirely, but eventually we start to see that a lot of that has a lot to do with control, that we're trying to control our experience, and that in control there's no peace. Control is like the opposite of peace. And so slowly we start to trust that we can actually relax into our experience just as it is. So we actually start to trust ourselves to let go of control. And um, as we can do that more and more, we find much more freedom and peace. So it's really about learning to meet life as it is. And often when we start practice, well, let's just say as we practice more and more, we increase our capacity to do that. Is that helpful? Yes. Okay. No outcome-based meditation. <laughs> no outcome-based meditation, right. It's kind of a paradox, though, right? Because, I mean, obviously we're doing all this because we hope for certain results. I mean... So it's that holding that paradox that, yes, we hope to develop hearts and minds that are more skillful, spacious, peaceful, compassionate, happy. And yet the way that we do that is by not trying to do that. And on one level, you know, the way that we learn to do that is by learning to actually relax into what our experience is and be with it. So it's a paradox. It's actually a paradox. Is there any advantage? I love the analogy about the road where I've gone down this road many times and I'm happy with another one. Is there any advantage when you're in that stage of kind of like the awareness afterwards to start contemplating different roads so you can start fantasizing different roads and maybe when something's happened, you do afterthoughts, then you think, well, what else could I have done? And yeah. you come up with different scenarios. So when you catch yourself in it, you've got more options at your well, that's why the awareness after is, is, is at least a good step, because you can look back and you can go, oh, yeah, okay, so how did I get stuck here? And what happened when I did a certain thing? And what could have happened differently? And like I said, there's precedent in the Buddhist sutras for doing that, you know, for looking back. Did this cause suffering? Did this bring happiness? And, yeah, what could I have done differently? It's a great, it's helpful. Yeah, to avoid suffering, right? Especially when we act out what's our knots and uh, cause inflict suffering on others or bring general grief and distress to a situation. <laughs> yeah. um, do you find it of any value to think in terms of uh, how um, uh, karmic knots are interacting with another person mm. in your reflection? Yeah. So the question was about karmic knots and if it's helpful though to think about how ours are interacting with other persons. Well, my partner's here tonight, so <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's why relationships of any kind are so useful, right? Our friends and family and partners and kids and um, because often they'll see our knots before we do. You know, so they can help us out by pointing out what they are. Um, I think for me, just over the years of 
just seeing how slow changes with some of these patterns, it's also helped give me a little bit more compassion for other people when they're stuck and their stuff. Because, yeah, I was like, oh, okay, I know that. That's, that's, that's one of the benefits of going through all of this is the compassion that we can start to have for others. Is that from more or less, did I miss any angle or is there? Um, well, I was curious if, if with your coworker, let's your coworker, if, if you ever sort of contemplated her part in of the drama, um, or if, that, if, that, if that's helpful or if that's just getting caught in a story. I mean, in some ways it might not be helpful if it takes us away from being with our own experience. I think that one was fully mine. <laughs> That's my experience. I mean, you know, after I got to know her, and actually, eventually, I told her. I used that story in a drama talk before, and at one point, I told her. <laughs> so that's not drama. No, no, that one was mine. <laughs> yeah. So if we if we too much try to figure out other people, often it's really a way of trying to get away from what our own experiences, and and the pain of our own experience, and owning that it's ours, yeah. Though that's not to say that at times there aren't interlocking patterns we'll have with somebody. And then hopefully if we if we feel close enough to them, we can figure it out together, you know, support each other. Um, I want to thank you for the little, little part you mentioned about the karmic not appear and that Yeah. Um, and and it allows me to get to a point where I could just stay with that yes. fear. Um, and then when it came around again, um, when fear came up again, um, it had changed in the character. Um, that's hard to describe. But at any rate, to me, that's the way that it felt. So uh, that was very validating. That this is part of, you know, approaching this particular one. And the other thought I had from the group of people was, um, you know, afterwards, um, in interactions with others, I would uh, think more about. get more into what my suffering was. I already knew the other person suffered too, because I heard from it. I kind of get more intimate with my suffering, and the compassion would come up. Yes. And um, I, my old way would have been to think about planning, plan B and plan C, and know what I was going to say and everything. And I think that's more of control. Yes. You know, so safe. But what I experience now is, okay, so my goal is not to go down that road. That's that's the biggest thing. I know when the invitation is given, I don't want to go there. That that in itself is is doing something, but it, it's not doing something. And then the second thing was, you know, to breathe and to stay in the moment and not plan out. What I was going to say is one day and I had a good test of that lately in an interaction with somebody who really expected me to lose it, and um, I didn't. Okay, we get to surprise ourselves <laughs> by acting in ways that we didn't know we could. And she kept kind of going, well, did anything surprise you? And I kind of provoking, and I was no, no, no. Just within a moment, what popped out of my mouth was, 
Confidence in your own practice. That's what comes. Yeah. Thank you. So the question was about how can you tell if you're kind of prematurely disidentifying from something? I mean, I think if fear is present, it's like I felt in your question there was you mentioned fear. You didn't say it head on, but the, if there's a if there's a sense, it takes time actually to understand the question. I mean, like what you're asking takes a lot of mindfulness to actually understand. So. First of all, it's a process and to accept that you're not always going to know or that you might afterwards see. Um, but, as, as, but when we look carefully, if there's some sense of fear or control, then usually it's we're moving away out of some kind of aversion, right? And that if the not going there is from genuine equanimity, wisdom, there will be a softening of the heart. So if it's out of control, there's going to be an edge of the heart. And you'll feel it goes into some kind of edge. And if it's genuine, the heart will be soft. I think that's a good way to check it out. Yeah. Maybe exactly what I was about to say. <laughs> if there is one more. Yeah. question was, sometimes I repeat it because people are listening to the talk later. So the question was about um, if there could be some usefulness at the end of the day to kind of review and see where maybe we got stuck, what we could have done differently, or if that felt like it might be too hard, right? I think it could definitely be a useful discipline. And because of your question, looking at the attitude with which we're doing that investigation could be really helpful. So is the attitude to beat myself up or to whip myself into shape or to make myself be perfect or, you know, so if all the motivations like that, then then we have to deal with that, right? Like, But if the motivation is like, wow, how could I suffer less and bring less suffering, suffering to others or some sense of compassion or kindness, then you could see that it would be a very different kind of investigation. So to me, it would be important to see what the motivation was behind it and to kind of try to tend towards the kinder motivation. It would probably be more useful, right, than using it as a reason to beat ourselves up because most of us could find some reason if we look over a day to give ourselves some grief. It's hard being a human being. We make mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Um, if I have time, I'm just going to end with a short poem that some of you have heard before, I'm sure, but I like it because I, I think it illustrates, there's only five chapters instead of six like my diagram, but it illustrates the same thing. It's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. 
I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. (laughs) So, good luck. Um, nice talking with you tonight, and uh, I'll stay up here a few, for a few more minutes if there are any questions afterwards that somebody wants to ask. But thank you so much for your engagement, and um, wish you good luck with your practice. Thank you, Jordan, for coming, and hope you could go Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.